St. Paul says, Death, where is your sting? Christians believe in the resurrection of the body. Christians hope in the reality of heaven. But how can this authentic Christian hope exist alongside such sadness and feelings of loss when someone we love dies? Two of the most striking words in the entire Bible are, Jesus wept. Even this eternal God, who became man, wept over the death of his dear friend Lazarus. Walk with us as we explore death and the feelings of loss by those of us left behind. I am Edward Herrera, and this is How We Grieve. Miscarriage and infant loss are hard to talk about. People really don't know what to say or how to help. Sometimes miscarriage happens so early that people didn't even realize you were pregnant. Other times they don't even realize that you lost your child. Today we speak with Diana, Jenny, and Susie about their experience of miscarriage and infant loss. When Mike and I had been married seven years, we were pregnant with our third child. This is Diana. About 17 weeks into the pregnancy, we went to the doctor for our ultrasound that they do around that time. And while we were in the ultrasound, the technician was acting really strange. And I had a kind of a strange feeling that something was wrong. And at one point, she asked me to leave and empty my bladder. And while I was gone doing that, I was thinking in my head, oh, she just wants to tell Mike what's going on because they wanted to help prepare me or whatever. And sure enough, when I got back into the ultrasound room, uh, Mike had a really strange look on his face. And the radiologist um, just kind of put her hand on my arm and said, I'm really sorry, but your baby has a fatal birth defect and you need to go immediately to your doctor, which was just right across the street. So we went over to the doctor and she told us that our baby boy had anencephaly and would not be able to live very long outside the womb. There was a small chance that he would die while I was pregnant with him, that he would die in utero. And then there was a chance that he would live, but then die shortly afterward. And so we had to go another 23 weeks knowing that our child was going to die. And so we just had to kind of spend that time obviously devastated. And uh, I spent a lot of time crying. Um, You know, we had two kids we already had that we had to continue to take care of and raise and plan a funeral and 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 a big thing was how to deal with the children while I was getting bigger and more pregnant and how to sort of help them go through that because that ended up being painful for them obviously and and still trying to deal with it you know ourselves because we were very sad unfortunately Diana also experienced significant medical issues during her son's labor and delivery Okay, so when I had delivered my first child, Sarah, she was a C-section because she had trouble coming out. And then I delivered my second child, John, naturally, and then we were going to deliver Stephen naturally also. Uh, and then I, I, can't, I guess they had to give me Pitocin for something about his birth defect. My body wasn't going to go into labor on its own. So they did that, and the doctor had mentioned she was a little concerned because when you've had a previous C-section, your uterus can rupture. And so I had, actually, he was a very fast delivery compared to Sarah and John. So they gave me the Pitocin. I think I had him four hours later. And um, sometime after that, I don't remember the timing, um, I started having a lot of pain. And 
they gave me a shot. It didn't help. They tried something else. It didn't help. And then all, all of a sudden, I just remember I suddenly was like, I can't breathe. I couldn't. And somebody from behind me put oxygen on me. And they had been trying to get an ultrasound machine to see what was going on, but it never came. So they just wheeled me into the operating room. And it turned out my uterus had ruptured. I lost a ton of blood. And my doctor, thank goodness, was able to fix me up. So when we came out of that, Stephen had already passed away while I was in surgery. And I don't remember if it was that day or before we left the hospital or if it was my next visit. I don't remember. But the doctor just said that my uterus had ruptured in such a way that the scar or whatever was just like a jagged stitch up. And she said, we really should not have any more kids because um, just a pregnancy could cause it to rupture. And if I wasn't in the hospital, like I was when it ruptured the first time, I could die and obviously then the baby would die. So I was heartbroken. And I dragged Mike to every like specialist in the city of Houston, get, find, trying to find a doctor to tell me I could have another child and it would be fine. And, and we never found one that said that. So then we very sadly started um, having to practice our NFP to not have any more children. And really, that was so devastating. I'd always wanted a big family. Since I was a little girl, I'd wanted to have six or eight kids. So I was very sad for a very long time, on top of, you know, the sadness of losing my kid. We weren't really planning on having any more children. It wasn't necessarily something we were trying for. This is Susie. It was like the summer of 2017, I guess. I found out that I was expecting again, and it was kind of a shock. But um, after that initial shock came over, we were just like happy. Like we were like really, really happy, really, really excited. I get extremely, extremely sick with my pregnancies. So that was kind of hard. I, I knew that that was gonna be coming and my life was just gonna completely stop. And I was just gonna be sick for like a long time. So um, my kids weren't in school for like two weeks and I had to go to my doctor's appointment. So they all came to my doctor's appointment with me and found out that we were expecting again. Now, previously, I've had a miscarriage at eight weeks, and then I had another miscarriage around like 16 weeks. And so, you know, in the back of my mind, I was always just kind of like a little worried about that, but I was like, you know, I've had four healthy children, like I'm not really that worried. And and then my pregnancy just continued on, and I started feeling better. And then I went to one doctor's appointment around like 28 weeks, and the baby's heart rate was a little bit higher than it normally is, and my blood pressure was up. And so my doctor was like, I think I'm going to start you on some medicine for it. So I was just kind of a little fearful, like, after that appointment. So I went home, and after I went home, shortly after that, I my anxiety was up, and I just started feeling horrible. I could hardly move. Like, I was just very tired. So, like, three weeks or so passed, and I went in for my next appointment, my doctor wasn't there at the time. He was like in a delivery. And so they came back and they said, we don't, we don't see a heartbeat. You know, looking back on it, like I think I was so surprised, but I also wasn't really surprised because I knew that I wasn't feeling okay. Like, you know, getting up to get a drink of water winded me. Like, that's not normal. Like something was wrong. And then all of a sudden it just kind of hit me how sick I was. I didn't realize it. And so he kind of started talking to me a little bit about what I needed to do then and how he needed to make sure that I made it through this experience. And then I started just getting like, you know, all of a sudden shock, like, oh my gosh, I just, I lost my baby. But then the shock of like, oh my gosh, I need to make it back for the children that I have here. Susie then went to the hospital with her husband, Victor. I was there 
for three days, I think. I think on the second day she was born. And um, my husband and I spent four or five hours with her. We got to hold her and just go to our room with her. We got to take pictures with her. It was like a very emotional time for us. But in a way, I mean, it was like the most beautiful experience I've ever had, especially with my husband. I mean, it's unfortunate something like that has to bring you closer, but it definitely did for us. Like it brought us like really, really, really close and just very intimate in that moment. And so I came home and, you know, my daughters were very, very happy to have me back. But uh, they handled it really well. I felt like with them, they were like, if mom's okay, we're okay. So if I was crying, they were crying, you know. So in a way, my whole grief process was very, it was very different from when I lost the baby at 16 weeks. I think when I lost the baby at 16 weeks and when I lost the other baby at eight weeks, you were sad, you healed, and then I had another baby. And there's no, there's never been any, you know, reason for anyone to come and say, this is why this is happening. Like this is, this is why this happened to your daughter which is comforting, but it's also very hard to accept because you just wish you could have someone just say, this is what happened. So I try not to blame myself for like a ton of things. I really don't think there's anything I could have done differently. But I think the hardest thing with my whole grief was that I, I had to come back and be a mom again. So I couldn't just sit around and cry and be sad forever, which is good because I had to get back to my, my own type of a thing. But you also had to just kind of keep face for a lot of people around you, which I think was a little bit hard. But hands down, the hardest thing for me is that I probably won't ever do it again. So that whole experience with pregnancy, with delivery, with everything wasn't joyful. It was very sad. And so that's, that's a hard thing to carry around for like the rest of my life. So my husband and I have been married for 10 years, and our second child, Joseph Angelo, is in heaven. This is Jenny. We found out when I was 19 weeks pregnant that our son had a terminal diagnosis called uh, thanatophoric dysplasia. And at that time, we were, of course, you know, very shocked and devastated by the news. We didn't know very many people at that time who had had the loss of a child or even miscarriages. Now I know so many people who have. Once we started talking about it, I realized how many people that we knew did. But at the time, you know, we really didn't know a lot of people who had. So we were presented with options at that time. And of course, we chose life for our son. Uh, we chose to love him as long as his heart was beating and um, to give him the best life that we could. And we had a wonderful pro-life doctor who supported us every step of the way. And we had wonderful support within our parish and uh, within the community. And I received support from a group called Isaiah's Promise, which is a support group for families who choose to carry to term following a terminal diagnosis. So we carried our son to term. I ended up actually having to have an emergency C-section. And when he was born, uh, because of his diagnosis, he wasn't able to breathe. It's a type of dwarfism where the chest cavity is very small and so the lungs aren't able to expand. So when he was in my womb, he was 
you know, safe cradled in there, but once he had to breathe, he wasn't able to breathe on his own. And um, he had a number of other uh, difficulties too, but that was the main, the main one. Um, so when he was born, he actually cried. We were very surprised. They kept telling us they didn't know if, if he would even make it to, if even he, he would even survive the birth or if I would miscarry early, but he um, was able to give us one beautiful hour of life. And uh, he was, my husband baptized him at the time we got to meet his his grandparents and my daughter Abby who was just about a year at the time and um, we really celebrated and cherished his life and then following we were able to um, you know share him with with the world and since that time I've actually been able to uh, be involved with Isaiah's Promise myself um, I'm now a board member there and I assist with peer ministry and helping other families who are in similar shoes. Ladies, thank you for sharing your stories. Diana, when you found out about Stephen's condition, was there any pressure from your doctor not to carry him to term? So it was funny because my doctor, as soon as we went in there after we got the diagnosis, you know, we walked across the street and met with my doctor who saw us immediately. She presented us with that option. She said, um, you know, here, here's the percent chance of what's of the different things that could happen. I um, mean, your other option is to terminate the pregnancy. It was funny because I never felt pressure to have an abortion from anybody, not to say people didn't say things and not very many people did, but I never felt that pressure at all. I knew exactly how I felt about that. And, and it wasn't even a position. It wasn't a stance. It was just like, there's no way I was going to do that. I wanted to meet my child. Um, so my doctor presented us with that option and I just said, Oh no, we don't want to do that. We'll just, you know, go to term and, and deal with it that way. And from that point forward, she was amazing. She did say, take two days, call me in two days and let me know. She just wanted me to think about it. I said, that's fine. I said, I'm not going to change my mind, but if that makes you happy, I'll certainly call you in two days. And so we let her know that we were going to just treat the pregnancy as a normal pregnancy. And I never felt pressure from her again. In fact, I got nothing from her and from the nurse practitioner and even the nurse that would see me and take my blood pressure. I got nothing but love and support from them. I, the, I did get a stray, I had a strange conversation with somebody in the doctor's office. It was an insurance person. Like they had somebody that worked in the back office. It was a young girl. I just remember thinking, well, she's young. She has no idea. But, but we were doing some paperwork for the insurance and she was asking me something and I had to tell her, well, the baby's not going to live. So whatever it was, wasn't an issue. And she looked at me and goes, well, why aren't you going to have an abortion? And it didn't, at the time, I just was like, I want to meet my baby. I didn't really say too much about it, but I just remember thinking, and I was young at the time. That's what's hilarious. I was, I was, I don't know how old I was, but I was young in my thirties, but she was probably 17 or 18. And I just thought she has no idea what she just said out loud. Jenny, were there any negative reactions about your response to Joseph's diagnosis? You know, in my experience, there were a few, um, but for the most part, my husband and I surrounded ourselves, <laughs> we're very blessed um, within the Catholic community of a lot of people who were very supportive. 
In my work with Isaiah's Promise, unfortunately, I, I come across a lot of families who that was not the case. You know, doctors who basically say, unless you terminate, I'm not going to be serving you during this time. You need to find another doctor, things like that. It is very sad in our culture that our experience was not the norm. Many people think, why, why would you do that? How, why would you put yourself through that? Or, you know, what they don't understand carrying to term. Our culture is very much kind of the throwaway society, start again, try again, you know, without regard to um, the inherent dignity and value of the lives of those who are most vulnerable. So it was actually a real opportunity for us to be able to witness to the medical community and to those around us that, um, you know, our son was not a diagnosis, he was our son and um, he is, is very precious to us. And, you know, we ended up going to several different uh, specialists and everyone respected our decision. I think some maybe understood it more than others. <laughs> I am Edward Herrera and this is How We Grieve. More with our guest after the break. I'm Edward Herrera, and this is How We Grieve. Before the break, we were talking with Diana, Susie, and Jenny about the loss of their children. Susie, earlier you mentioned your shared sadness and intimacy with your husband, Victor, after losing Rose. Can you tell me more about that? So he was not there when like, I found out that we had lost Rose. And so he, he had to be like pulled out of a meeting at work and it was kind of whatever. And then the doctor gets on the phone and like told him about it. And so it must have been really shocking and hard for him, like just to kind of be in this work mode and you're in a meeting and all of a sudden you're like, I, I got to go. And so the hardest thing about going in and having a baby that has passed away is that you do everything that you do when you have a you know baby that you get to take home with you. But, you know, they just are pumping you. It's very unnatural because your body's just holding on to this baby. And so they're just making your body deliver this baby. So the hardest part about when Rose was born was that, you know, people kind of prepare you for what to expect. Now, when I left my, like, 28-week appointment and I wasn't feeling that good or things were a little strange with my vitals and stuff, it's probably, like, a couple of days later that she passed away. So... When I went back for my 32-week, 33-week visit, she had been gone for two or three weeks. And so her appearance was not of just like a baby who had passed away, but her skin was kind of broken down a little bit. So they were kind of preparing me for that. And so that was really nerve-wracking when the nurse was just getting her ready for us. And all, like, we were just scared because, you know, of course you want to hold her, but you don't know what to expect. So they brought her to us and we held her and it was wonderful. It was beautiful. And from Victor, you know, the question about my husband, he held her and, you know, we were just holding her for a while. But it was like little things, like he would hold her in his arms and just look at her as if she was just alive. You know? And he would take the tissue and just pat her nose. And that's like the, the image I have that's so sad because he's like such a great dad and it was just so sweet. I don't know. I don't know how many men would handle that situation, but I felt like he handled it really well. He just, he's very, very loving and very, very tender in very many ways. But he, he just really connected with her, and I think it was beautiful. And then after that, the nurses came, and they said, you know, whatever you want us to take her, we will. And 
well, I just decided, I was like, you can take her. And that was hard. But um, that night in the hospital, I couldn't sleep. Naturally, when you have a baby, you don't sleep, right? Like the baby's just up all night. And when you're like a new mom, you're nursing. And I think it's just nature's way of just like keeping you attentive to your baby. And so I couldn't sleep, you know, for like three days. I could not sleep at all. Like I would just be so tired and I would just lay down and close my eyes, but I couldn't ever fall asleep. And that was really hard. But Victor was there, you know, for that one night that we were there in the hospital and he just just laid with me and just held me. And I think just us crying together, like being sad together, just kind of going through something that you know, most people don't go through together. You know, it was just very intimate and it brought me really close to him. And I think it brought him close to me too. And then, you know, we went home. But after that situation, he was the only person I wanted to be around because he didn't ask me if I was okay. He didn't coddle me. He just let me be whatever emotion I was. He didn't ask any questions. He just was there in that situation. You know, that's just what I needed. But I think the biggest thing for Victor was when he left the hospital, he left it all there. So he came home and he was a dad again, and he was just, you know, getting back to work, kind of doing his things. And of course, for me, it was just a different story because my body's going through it all. And it's just, it was extremely hard. But I think a lot of his emotions, a lot of his just sadness, I mean, I think he was still sad, but a lot of his emotions and a lot of that stuff, I mean, I think he just, he left it all there and you know, but I'm, of course, going to carry it with me forever. And I have all the physical stuff, you know, that I was going through. Because your body just doesn't know what the baby's gone. So it's just, it goes through everything that, you know, you do. I don't know. I think, I think for Victor, it was just, hmm. It was so sad. But at the same time, it was so beautiful. And I think the beautiful part of it was just, I don't know, just to share in that, like, intimacy with somebody. Like, you don't have that like very often you're like it's like when you have like a baby you know I mean it's like when you're just alone with like you and your wife and your and this new child that you had together it's just it's absolutely incredible and I think maybe like in a way like we were just we, we did the same thing and we were just so happy to have experienced her in a different type of a way and it was really pretty I mean it was just it was just a mystical experience for sure <laughs> Jenny, did you grieve differently than your husband, John? I think it hit me immediately right at the diagnosis. You know, I already kind of started to grieve, whereas my husband, John, really, he grieved more after the birth. I could feel the kicking. It was very real to me, and his grief kind of was a little bit later. And so, in some ways, that was good because he could kind of support me during the time when I could support him. In my work with Isaiah's Promise, a lot of times I'll um, see that, you know, the women are a lot more emotional in their grief and the husbands are a lot more kind of active in their grief. Um, they'll need something to do, like um, creating a special, you know, memory box or creating, you know, we had one father who actually built um, his son's casket. So to be able to kind of have hands-on ways to grieve, a lot of times the fathers will kind of get the checklist and go down and, you know, take care of everything. Obviously everyone is, is very different in how they grieve. I don't want to stereotype, but um, I think 
in some ways men and women do grieve very very differently and there's nothing wrong with that it's just the way that everyone is you know it, it's it's an opportunity for more communication and being able to talk about something that might be helpful to you might not be helpful to your husband and vice versa being able to just really be open about that and communicate about what is helpful and just that open communication can can really help i think and with miscarriage too no matter when the the child is lost that grief is very real you know and obviously our situations are different but they're they're also very similar too and i think that sometimes if a child is lost you know six weeks or, or very early on families feel like their grief isn't validated like oh you know it was only this time but it certainly is very much very real and very much a grief as as any loss and just to kind of validate that that um, no matter how long that child is always going to be a part of their family and with the loss of an infant you're not just grieving that one loss for a couple weeks it's their day to kindergarten their first communion that you're missing their you know it's a lifetime of loss and so I think people don't always understand like oh I don't understand how you couldn't just get over it you know and and that's just silliness (laughs) right it's just kind of nonsense that you would be able to just move on because it's 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 a loss that that can have a very a very long impact and Diana was there anything that you felt particularly helpful or unhelpful as you grieve Stephen's death um you know and this might just be a matter of personal opinion, but my, for me, the way it was, was what was not particularly helpful, which I know that people mean in love and, and kindness, is um, sort of having opinions on how you're doing it, how you should be doing it differently, or even even how you should be grieving differently, like I needed, this was just me, some other people might be different, but I needed a lot of time alone with my family. Sometimes people would just drop by and I I didn't, like I had one cousin that lived a couple of blocks over and she showed up. So I think that was five months, right? If I was 17 weeks, I had five months to go. She showed up every week for the next five months, knocked on my door, was standing outside my door in tears. She couldn't say a word and she would hand me a bouquet of flowers every week for five months. And that was obviously lovely because she didn't, she wasn't trying to say, there's just nothing you can say, quite frankly. There's nothing you can say that's going to make you feel better in that moment. There's just not. But just, it was almost the the suffering with me. I guess that was what was helpful, was suffering with me. Like, I knew she was sad. She was, you know, bringing me flowers just to give me something to brighten my day. But she wasn't saying things that were not going to make it better. Um, that was helpful. Whereas sometimes we had some instances where people would just drop by thinking that what I needed was company and not to be alone. And that was actually so difficult for me because it was people that I knew loved me. It was people I loved, but I didn't want it. I just wanted to do that alone with my kids and my husband. Not not to say that I didn't sometimes need that. I just didn't need it a lot. And, and sometimes that got a little bit overwhelming. And I just kind of got to where I would not open the door or not in a rude way. Like they wouldn't, I was there. I just wouldn't, you know, I just wouldn't be there basically because I just, I I didn't know how to lovingly say, 
I just want to be alone. And sometimes I would say, I just need to be alone. They couldn't understand that, and which I get. They couldn't understand that. And so they would still try to, you know, come in and spend the entire day with me and my kids while Mike was at work and whatever. And that was hard for me. That was a tough part. Jenny, you work a lot with couples who experience miscarriage or the loss of an infant. Can you provide us with some guidance on things we probably shouldn't say? I think that there's a couple. I um, remember reading this in an article about grief that anything someone says with the caveat of at least is probably not helpful. So for example, at least you have a child or at least you can still have children or at least he's not suffering. Those kind of statements are usually not um, helpful because uh, it sort of takes away from the grief experience. So yes, I did have another child and yes, I could have other children, but my son died and I wanted him here in my arms at that time. And um, so those things, while they might be true and they did bring me comfort, that didn't take away the the pain of that that my son was was no longer here. Those kinds of statements, you know, at least he's not suffering or he's in a better place, um, were true and and do bring comfort, but not necessarily. I don't need to hear that over and over and over again. I don't think that um, those kinds of things were helpful. Um, What was helpful was people asking specific things that they could do to help, not just saying, uh, what can I do? But, you know, can I bring you a meal? Can I mow your lawn? Can I um, take your child so you can get a nap or a shower? Or, um, those kinds of specific actions were helpful. It was also helpful just to ask what I needed because um, a lot of the time I didn't know what I needed um, and I definitely didn't know what I needed from other people. <laughs> I was like, I don't even know what I need for myself. And, you know, one day, I want to be alone, but then the next day it's like, well, where'd everyone go? <laughs> you know, so it kind of changed day to day what I needed. So, um, in speaking to others who are helping those who are grieving, just keep showing up and just keep asking what what they need because it might be different. Just because they want to be alone yesterday doesn't mean they want to be alone today. I guess. So those were things that were were helpful. Susie, do you have any thoughts about this? I mean, one thing that was really, really, really hard for me was people for months and months after I had her, people would keep still think I was pregnant. Um, you know, after you have a baby, you still look pregnant because your body is not healed, but you're carrying the infant with you all the time. And so for me, that was really hard because people at the gym or people here would be like, oh, when is your baby due? And I'm like, and so that was really, really hard. And I think I handled that all fine, but um, it was, you know, just a hard thing to hear. People at the church, of course, didn't do that as much because they knew they knew me. I did go, let's see, Rose was born during the week, and I forget what day it was. I came home from the hospital, and whatever that next weekend was, I went to Mass. And um, I shouldn't have. I mean, it was too much for me to be in the church and just, I was overcome with emotion. Like I just couldn't control my emotions at that point. And I knew that all these people were going to come up to me 
like you feel like it's like one of those situations like everyone's eyes are on you and um I shouldn't have done that and so people would come up to me and like some like older women who were just like so sweet would be like why are you here Susie you know and I'd be like I don't know or they would be like I could just slap you for coming you know or say stuff like that you know which I'm like I know what am I doing here but um that is a hard thing too and I've been in that situation too you want to say something to someone you want to be there but you're afraid to because of what that person has been through and so I you know it was hard to be in that role of like people avoiding you people coming up to you people wondering should I say something should I go up to her or not and that lasted for a long time when I when I first started walking my daughters into school again you know because I was like absent for a while that was hard because like everyone would look at my belly and I'd be like but the comments I don't know there was one lady who she didn't really share her story but she just told me that she'd been through the same thing and the one thing that she said to me was she was like you can be angry at god like you can be upset she was that's okay and she goes but don't be angry for very long like that's what she said to me and so i looked at her and i was just like i'm not i'm not angry you know what i mean like that was my first reaction but of course I was, you know, and when she first said that to me, I, I was annoyed by that comment. But then later on, I was like, you yeah, know, she's right. But I think the hardest thing is, is that in the beginning, people are always sensitive around you, you know, coming up to you. I'm so sorry. Many people would just not say a word to me. They would just touch me. Like that was it, you know, and I liked that because I just didn't want to talk to a bunch of people. But the hardest part about just going through all that is when things become normal again, because life is just goes on around you like normal and you're going through this horrible time and everything is just normal. Like people are still happy and doing, having parties and going out and doing fun things and celebrating other things. And here you are in just deep misery. That That's really hard realizing that it just goes on, you know. Diana, it's been several years since you lost Stephen. Is this something you felt? Uh, you know, you definitely feel that. You definitely do feel that. Um, I do remember a specific instance of feeling that, where it was like I was with some girlfriend. This was months later, and I was with my girlfriends, my college friends, at a lake, and we were sitting on a boat, and the sun was going down, and I just remember I started bawling because because that is what it feels like. It's, oh, my gosh, the sun is setting again. How dare, you know? Um so it does feel like that, but I really just was so, God was just, I don't know why, so incredibly good to me because I really was just surrounded by friends that were mostly willing to just do whatever. And I remember on, on the one year anniversary of Stephen's death, I had a dream about him in that, that night before I woke up. And one of my friends came over the next day, same thing, just quiet, unannounced, unassuming, and brought over a cake. She was a cake decorator, and she made a beautiful little cake with balloons all around it. And when I dreamed about him, there were balloons in my dream. And I had people send me, I had this book I bought at Veritas that helped me, but then I had other friends send me books on grief. And there is something about knowing someone has felt that before that for me was helpful. Like, I devoured that book and I highlighted it and I read it multiple times and I've given it to, um, you know, friends after that that have gone through loss of a child. I would just say check in. So, you know, obviously the first two or three months, people are still really there and checking on you. Maybe your meals are coming that whole time or whatever. And then maybe as a ministry, the people there can check in either with a phone call, drop a note, say, I'm thinking about your 
spouse or child or whoever passed away, um, have a mass offered for them, you know, just something so that you feel like someone is remembering with you. I had one friend who has passed away. She called me every single year. He would, he would be 20 and he'd be 19 this coming year. Stephen would be 19. She died four years ago. So for 15 years, she called me every single year on his birthday. Every, and that was just so lovely and kind and beautiful. And you just, it's just nice to know someone else remembers besides you, you know. Diana, I know there's a little more to your story. So it was Christmas Eve and uh, my period was late. And it was quite a bit late. And so I told Mike I was going to go run to Walgreens and just get a pregnancy test so that I could go to Christmas Eve at my family's and have wine if I wanted to. Just I wanted to make sure I wasn't pregnant. And I did not think I was because I had taken tests in the past and I was never pregnant. Um, But sure enough, on Christmas Eve of 2007, um, I was pregnant. And at first, I was completely panicked and terrified because I remembered how scared I had felt when I was going into the OR, you know, many years before with after Stephen, I, I remember feeling like I, I was thinking I was going to die because I had lost a ton of blood and I was scared. And so sort of all that came flooding back like, oh my gosh, I still have two kids to raise. You know, ah, I was, you know, kind of annoyed with myself. And But anyway, so I went through a few days of complete panic. And then I just said, you know, it, I just was able to see it for what it was, which was like a huge gift, really, because... After everything we had been through, it just I just thought, this has to be from God. This has to be, I mean, of course, every child is from God, but I thought this has to be God saying, you know what, it's okay, I'm going to bless it, it's all right. And so I really felt peaceful after that, and I, um, I was a little nervous to tell my doctor because while she always supported my natural family planning, she still always offered me contraception, <laughs> which I always politely declined. So I was a little bit scared to tell her, so I called the nurse practitioner and said, Marlene, I've got something to tell you that I need you to tell Dr. Thompson. Because I didn't want to to tell Dr. Thompson myself, I was scared. So uh, I told Marlene, and then Marlene called me back, or Dr. Thompson did, one of them did, I can't remember. And and they were so great, and they were thrilled, and they said, we're going to take amazing care of you, it's going to be fine, we'll deliver a month early to, you know, keep you from getting as big as you can get, and all the nurses and the nurse practitioner who had been who'd walked through everything with me when Stephen was dying came to the hospital to meet Michael and they dote on him every time they see him and yeah so Michael was like our little treasure little exclamation point that we were not expecting but we're so happy to have How We Grieve is hosted and written by Edward Herrera, with production help, original music, editing, and creative direction by Jay Lampard. Special thanks to our guests for sharing their stories of loss and hope. To learn more, visit our website, howwegrieve.org. This has been a production of the Archdiocese of Baltimore.